0: Now on just for a little while this evening to look at the uh, passage that we read together um, from the life of Elisha. It's a great passage and uh, it's got great, I hope uh, you'll find great uh, encouragement and challenge and uh, um, just uh, teaching for us about the nature and the character of God and grace and salvation. And we remember that all of the Bible is God's book. And that uh, as we kind of dip into little bits of the Old Testament, we remember that that Old Testament in many ways is preparatory. It's beginning to point us towards Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the middle of the book. uh, And everything after, Jesus looks back to him, doesn't it? So Jesus is the focal point because Jesus is the Word. He's the Word incarnate. So everything points towards him. And um, we know that the Bible didn't stop at this point. And this isn't the end of Revelation. Uh, We recognize that the Bible is a progressive revelation. So we learn more about God, and we learn more about his purposes, and also that things change within the canon of Scripture Uh, so that the Word itself and the the Bible is its own final authority. And I think I would agree with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says that the Old Testament uh, was... uh, the only place where there were any holy wars in the whole of history. So, you know, the, the whole idea of holy wars is branded about, and maybe we're hearing a little bit just now about holy wars, and about, maybe not from a Christian point of view, uh, jihad wars uh, today, but in reality, uh, the Bible uh, gives us, in the Old Testament particularly, gives us really the only justification as God was at work using his people uh, in the Old Testament, uh, as it were, in in judgment and in in holy war. And there has been no time uh, in reality where, other than that, it is justified to take uh, that particular theological stance. But we do recognize and see that many of the Old Testament uh, physical battles uh, have spiritual application for us in our uh, lives in the New Testament era, as it were, uh, because of the spiritual battles that we face and the spiritual battles that we recognize are very real in our lives. But that's not the only application here. There's the character of God is unfolded a little bit for us. And God is, you know, as we said the last time we looked at that, God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not a different God. God Old Testament God and a New Testament God and a post-Bible God and then a 21st century God who's altogether uh, more trendy and acceptable. We have God. We have God who's truth. We have God who reveals himself. We have God who's not different. We have God who's God. And uh, we learn little bits about God here. And one of the great things we learn about God is his all-seeing eye. In this passage, he sees everything. In the in the beginning of that story, we've it's it's perplexing. We don't have anyone's names here. We don't even know exactly which perti- uh, definitively which particular kings are being spoken of here: King of Israel, and the King of Adam. or we're told it, it, Elisha was is the only named person we have in the story. It's rather vague, it's, so it's, we don't have a fixed historical exact time uh, for this story, but. Uh, the king of Aram is frustrated and angry because they're at war with the Israelite people, the people of God's people, the Israelites, and every time uh, their far superior forces go to attack the Israelites, the Israelites seem to know about it and are prepared. There's no surprise element in anything that he does. And this is really beginning to frustrate the king of Aram. And uh, it's so frustrating that he asks, you know, who is the, who's the one who's in our ranks who is uh, giving away this vital information? Who's the turncoat? Who's the Judas in this camp? And his, uh, uh, the men around him, uh, his officers, they seem to already know. I don't know why they didn't tell him earlier, but they seem to, maybe you didn't speak to the king uh, unless you were asked. And so the king asked them, and he said, well, it's because they've got elisha and elisha has the uh, the ear of god and god is telling elisha where you're going to attack and so they're prepared for that and um, that was a reminder even at this early stages if you if you imagine the uh, the later uh, Jewish people who read this story, uh, who it was written for, uh, they constantly needed reminders of who God was and of his knowledge. Because they sometimes felt God wasn't interested in them and God didn't care and God didn't know and God could be surprised by them and God could be shocked. And uh, the great reality for them in their uh, uh, position where they were taken captivity in Babylon hundreds of years later, was that God did know what was going on and was aware of their situation and would act on their behalf as they called out to him. And that reminder is continually significant and important to us. That this is also our God. God. That this is the God that uh, we go to and we uh, recognize is all-knowing. He knows our hearts, but he knows tomorrow. He knows our situation. He knows what lies ahead. And he understands even the blackness that sometimes we feel that we are in. And that's a great and significant and important reality as we worship uh, God this evening. At some levels it may be for us a, a blow to our pride. Um, because we sometimes live with the pretense that God doesn't really know what's going on. Here, uh, he even knows the pillow talk of the king of Adam, as it were. What, what he says in his bedroom is known uh, to God. And that is hugely significant for us as we try and hide our sins and our rebellion from him. Now, we work very hard at hiding our sins and our rebellion, and sometimes our unbelief, and our bitterness, and our pride, and our jealousy from other people. And somehow we feel in so doing we're outsmarting God, and uh, we're hiding it from him. But the great reality is that uh, he sees all things. This evening, as we come to worship this evening... All is laid bare before him, Uh, this great sovereign, all-seeing, all-knowing God. Our deepest fears, our uh, blackest guilt, our rage, our insecurity, uh, our difficulties, our fear of the future, our fear of the present, our fear of the past, all of these things are known to him, and uh, he recognizes and understands who we are. And that's a hugely liberating reality. Hugely liberating. Because it means we don't need, uh, as Neil was talking about this morning in, in uh, Cornerstone, we, we don't need to, to have any degree of hypocrisy before him. We don't need to put on any show before him. We don't need to pretend that we are not who we are. Because even knowing all that about us, he still goes to the cross still pays the price, still loves us enough to be our Redeemer and our Savior. And that's not a uh, recipe for a careless life that doesn't matter how we live, He knows anyway. It's a recipe for worship and for adoration and for repentance and faith and humility before a God who knows all things. We are absolutely limited in our knowledge Elisha was limited. He only knew what God revealed to him. The king of Adam, he had no idea what was going on and how his plans were thwarted. And the reality is that we need to recognize and know and appreciate the bigness of our God, the greatness of our God. And the reality that he knows and he understands and he is aware of our situation. And I think as we move on, we recognize and see uh, that this is a God who can show us the unimaginable. Uh, It's great. This is a great story. It's one of my favorites in the whole Bible. Um, And, you know, we spend a lot of time... uh, and i'm i 'm going to embarrass Neil okay because uh, I went to Cornerstone this morning, and uh, I thought what Neil preached was brilliant today. Um, it was a really difficult passage from the New testament, very difficult passage, and he courageously and bravely unpacked it and it was a great, It was a great message, uh, and one of the points he was making was that uh, we have a danger of trying to tame God and make him uh, easy and uh, in a a sense, inoffensive at at one level. And maybe we fear just now today in our society, in a a society that for the most part seems to reject God, that we need to make him acceptable to them in order for them to think of believing in him. Uh, uh, A world that's cynical and doesn't care particularly sometimes about God. And yet, um, we simply need to be faithful to who God is and reveal Him as He is, in humility, with respect, and gently, with love and compassion. And that will be what attracts people to Him, not some kind of... uh, siphoned, tamed down, shaved version of God that isn't really God, that we think people will accept. And here is an example of that in in many ways, uh, because we uh, see God opening up to us a spiritual realm that the world outside would laugh at and would be cynical about. But By faith, and because we understand and recognize and know who God is by His grace, uh, we uh, rejoice in this truth that is spoken of here. Uh, So the king of Aram goes up to Dothan, where he is told that Elisha is, and uh, Elisha and his servant. Uh, are there and the servant kind of you can imagine him waking up in the morning and opening up his curtains and there's this massive army outside and uh, he says oh my lord what shall we do the servant is you know perfectly within his rights to think that he's been absolutely rational and reasonable he's looking out and he sees what's there and he panics. That's, that's the reaction that he gives. That sheer and absolute terror and panic. Because with the eye of sight, it's a terrifying vision that he sees before him, this whole army. And they're not prepared for that. We don't know if there's any defense forces there. We don't know whether there's any Israeli army or anything. He just sees himself and the Elisha and this great army. But yet, Elisha's response is just outrageously full of faith and great. Where he prays, he says, Don't be afraid. How often does Jesus say that? How often is Elisha's life linked to Jesus' life? Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. O Lord, he prayed, Open his eyes so he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses. And chariots of fire. This great situation that Elisha reminds the servant and all the readers of uh, this book who were in captivity of God's people, who believed in God's faithfulness and covenant, and us as we look at this uh, picture that things are not as they seem. Okay? Things are not as they seem. There's this kind of, it's almost a token esque picture of these army chariots of fire and horses, God's army as it were, the angelic forces we sung about them in Psalm 91 and we'll sing about them again at the end of the service, that there was a different reality here that it wasn't just as it seemed for them and that again is a great lesson for us as we rely on God and as we have faith in God and trust in God, particularly in bleak situations. And it may be that, even if it's not for us tonight, it may be that it will be for us at some point, that generally, as a people, or personally in your own life, you feel absolutely alone. You feel the opposition to your life and particularly your Christian life is overwhelming and uh, that simply the odds seem to be stacked against you at every level at all points and what shall I do? Well it's important for us in an ongoing way in our Christian lives, though it doesn't seem like that absolutely doesn't seem like that consider the power and the forces and the protection of God that is on our side and remember uh, who God is. So we fix, Second Corinthians 4.18 says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And isn't that the big battle we face day to day in our lives? We fix our eyes on what is seen. We fix our eyes on our mortgage. We fix our eyes on our job. We fix our eyes on our relationship. We fix our eyes on the opposition we find outside. We fix our eyes on the smallness of the church, the defeatedness of the church, the emptiness of the pews. We fix our eyes on all these things. And we, God has abandoned us. He's walked away. He's left. He's not interested. He doesn't care. And it's important for us that uh, we fix our eyes on Jesus as Christians. Now, in f- September... In the morning worship, we're going to spend four weeks looking at the kind of main uh, vision and strategy of the church. And in many ways, it doesn't really get beyond this. We might have some ideas and different uh, aspects of it, but it really doesn't get further than fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ as we do so, he says himself, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. He will show us uh, himself. Isaiah 33 says, you will see the king and his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Why are we struggling in our Christian lives? Why is it such a battle for us every day? Because we choose to take our eyes off Jesus. We choose to close our eyes. We choose not to uh, delve into him. I learned so many new things about Jesus this morning that I was able to praise him because of who he is and because of his perfection and his beauty and the way he dealt with people uh, as we looked at that passage. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see things that we see by faith and we ask God to reveal it to us. It's hugely significant. Hugely significant that we do that in our lives and we recognize who he is. It's when we do that, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and when we ask for our eyes, spiritual eyes, to be opened, then we see with a different perspective. And we see things as he wants us to see. And uh, the great thing is that he also acts on our behalf as well as showing us who he is. Because the story is great because uh, a remarkable thing happens is that, oh, somehow uh, Elisha obviously uh, goes uh, to meet uh, this enemy as he draws towards them. And again, Elisha prays. And Elisha prays and says, Lord, open the, uh, strike the people with blindness. So he strikes them with blindness. And then uh, he leads them straight into the capital city of the Israelite people in Samaria. And so there's a complete reversal of the situation. Can you see that interesting reversal that we have in the situation? He prays for the servant. Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And then he prays here for the enemies. And he says, Lord, close their eyes so they can't see. I'm not sure exactly what, what happened to them, some kind of uh, uh, temporary... Visual amnesia, some, something that enabled them to walk and follow him, but didn't really understand what was happening. And uh, they come into the city, and they, at this point, are surrounded. It's a complete role reversal from being absolutely in control of the situation, coming to nail uh, Elisha and get rid of him. And all of a sudden, Elisha himself leads them uh, to a place where they're surrounded uh, by their enemies. The whole situation has turned entirely and completely upside down. And God takes what is a a difficult and a problematic and a bad situation and he turns it on its head uh, completely and absolutely and is going to use it for good. And uh, this is God at work. This is God at work uh, in this situation. And it's the bigger picture of salvation that we have here. And we recognise what Satan, right from the beginning, has intended for evil, in the garden, uh, with his uh, uh, the introduction of of death and rebellion and sin, and that God takes that same thing that death is introduced, and uh, He uses that on the cross to be the pathway to life and to future and to. Uh, God's grace and God's goodness. And I think that's a hugely significant and important reality for us in our lives, particularly when uh, we are in battle. You know, there's this uh, constant reality that we have a great gift of salvation, but there's still a lot more to come. We're in what theologians will call the already... we received, but there's not yet in the future, which is still to come. And in this, what we have just now, there's a great deal of battle and struggle, particularly in our own hearts, with doubt and with unbelief and with uh, greed and fear and lust and all these sins that battle uh, with us. And often it can feel overwhelming and impossible. The servant was here and he saw an impossible situation. Maybe this evening, you're facing an impossible situation as you go into the working week. I don't know what it might be. It might be something very kind of, for everyone else, mundane, but for you, hugely significant and quite impossible. It may be a relational issue where you can't deal with the other person because uh, it's the other person. You can only deal with yourself. But it's nonetheless an impossible situation. Uh, it may be a marital issue. It may be a family issue. It may be a financial issue. We could, there could be a, an unending list of what it might be of impossibilities. But we ask God to show us his purposes in these. And we trust in him to work out what Satan intends to be destructive, to separate us from God, to destroy our faith, to be something that builds up our faith and makes us stronger. And so often, that will be, that is the testimony of many Christians here, mature, older Christians, that they have battled and struggled and they have gone through times where they didn't know what was happening and they didn't know what God was doing and they didn't know why it was happening, but as they trusted and as they waited on God and as they sought his help and as they prayed for strength and vision, uh, they saw God taking that and turning it upside down. My life is full, relentlessly full, of miracles, of answered prayers. Everyday, ordinary miracles that, you know, you wouldn't testify, you wouldn't speak about, but nonetheless are there. That God, he takes the, you know, he makes the rough places plain. He brings down uh, the high mountains and he raises up, the valleys so that we walk that way as we walk and trust in Him and as we see that happening. Simply uh, crying out to Him, praying for the eyes to see and the faith to follow Him through that. And it's tremendous to know that the ongoing darkness and evil that we face in our lives will be used by God to transform our situation and to bring out of it good rather than evil. And then the story finishes with a beautiful uh, twist and uh, pointing towards the grace and cre- love of Christ in the New Testament. When they're in the city, you know that you can almost imagine the King of Israel jumping up and down with joy and saying, Yes, I've got my enemies here. Can I kill them now? Please, let me kill Let me destroy them. They're here in front of me. And uh, he shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He asks eagerly and quickly. Don't kill them, militia says. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. Finished eating and drinking, they went back to the master. So the bands from Adam stopped raiding Israel's territory. Isn't that a great picture? That we aren't the ones that make the judgments. We aren't the ones that call down fire from heaven on God, uh, or fire from heaven on uh, people. Uh, we aren't the one that decides to turn our backs on those we feel have no hope of the gospel. God is judge, and this was not their time. Uh, this was time for mercy. This was time for grace. Uh, Their sin, as the sin of the Canaanites, was was full. Their sin at this point was not. And uh, he showed this people grace and reminded the Israelites, 300 years later, the Israelites here and us, that the gospel was to be something that was to be offered. The mercy of God was something that was to be offered not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. all who would come to him uh, by faith. And so we have this lovely picture of uh, Jesus teaching, but I tell you, you, know love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And uh, a picture that goes right back to Proverbs in the Old Testament, say, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing so, you will keep burning coals in his head and the Lord will reward you. There's this great picture of how we are to treat people in our lives as Christians that we recognize uh, and see and know and understand that we act counter culturally with people. We don't condemn, we don't separate ourselves, we don't judge, we show them grace. That's our calling. Leave the judgment. Up to God. We show grace to those who are our enemies. Um, We love our enemies. You know, the the New Testament, the Pharisees taught, you know, love your friends and and hate your enemies. And that's very often what the world teaches, isn't it? That's not how uh, God wants us to be. There's nothing in our Christian life, and there's nothing Christ-like, about revenge, about retaliation, or about evil for evil. Please remember that. Many people will live their lives thinking, I'm going to get my own back. I've been treated badly. I will treat badly. I will give what I get. That is, that's the law of the jungle. That's the world in which we live. And sadly, many Christians think like that and think that is the way that we should act and maybe call God's hand of judgment down on people who are opposed to them but we see that Christ is very different and the gospel is very different and uh, we are to live very differently. Uh, People are not our enemies. Sin is our enemy. Satan is our enemy. Uh, But people are not our enemies. We are to love people, whoever they are, and bring them grace. And you know So much would be different in this world if Christians... Sadly, Christians sometimes are the worst for acting without grace and venomously and revengefully and in a self-centered way. If we acted with grace and heaped burning coals on the heads of those who we feel are against us, many things would be different in our lives. It's a great place of safety. We have been treated with grace. We treat others with grace. They don't deserve it. Did we deserve grace? Were we right with God that we deserve what we get. The more we understand and appreciate who we are, the more we will treat people the way Christ has treated us. That is a core lesson for us in our day-to-day living. It's not high highfalutin uh, theological truth. It's everyday living that we treat all who we meet with grace with the grace of God, and we share that grace uh, with them in our lives, and we pray for them, and we plead that they will be able to see, Lord, because isn't that what happens eventually with uh, these same people that Elisha prays, that they too will be able to see. So we're praying in our lives a lot for sight. Pray, Lord, help me to see. Help me to see spiritually. Help me see clearly. Help me to see the way you see. But we're also praying, Lord, help them see. Please help my best friend to see Jesus Christ. Please. I can't make them see. They're blind. They don't understand. They don't recognize the danger. Please help them to see. Have we lost that sense of of dependence and urgency? Is it all very clinical and just neat and packaged for us so that we no longer are pleading for our friends? A friend comes to church. What do we say? What do we say? May Preacher, preach a great sermon today. Or may the singing be really fine. Or may people speak to them. All important. But, but do we say, please, Lord, can they please see today? Show them who you are. Show them your love. Show them your grace. Show them their need. Show them who uh, that you are worthy of worship. And uh, act in their lives with this great grace uh, towards them. And these will be the things that begin to un. Uh, unravel the darkness and the blackness in their souls so just as we close can I remind you and remind myself uh, of uh, two very important things one is that ongoing sense of need Uh, I I like uh, the servant's prayer oh my lord what shall we do you know I I think that's a great prayer Uh, and I think we should pray that prayer more you know Lord, I don't don't have the answers. Lord, show me what to do. You know, we spend a lot of time telling God about ourselves and about himself and about what he should do, maybe. Uh, But that sense of need, isn't it? Isn't it great, Lord? I just, I don't know what to do. It's that sense of childlike dependence and need. And it's a great prayer because it's, it's asking for that guidance. We're not saying, okay, I've got it all sussed today. I know where I'm going. I just want you to, you know, back it up a little bit. just want you to stamp of approval on it. No. Lord, I don't know. Help me to see. Show me. That's a, that's a great prayer of dependence for our day-to-day living. And that sense of need backed up also by the genuine faith of Elisha, who was an ordinary person, a prophet of God, but was confident in his God who believed in his God who knew who could see by faith and who took that gift of faith and lived it who fixed his eyes on his God and who genuinely trusted uh, in him and that faith is is a gift it's one we ask for battle don't you battle with faith do you want everything to be by sight but he wants us to live with a greater and a stronger faith. And sometimes the deeper the hardships we face, the stronger as we rely on him, our our faith will become. It's like it's been tested in the fire and the gold becomes more pure. The impurities come out of it. So don't rebel against God in in the struggles, in the battles. Don't question his love and his grace, but um, see what he's doing and, and Ask what he's purifying and what he's removing from our lives. And can I ask you to kind of pray this passage into your life? You know, just pray it into your life so that you take and learn from this God, from this passage and, and bring it into the 21st century of your life and of your living and, and uh, see and hear God and be reminded of the God who says, look, don't be afraid. It, it does seem impossible. Your situation, the, all the odds are against you, but please don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Isn't that a great encouragement to us? In a city where only 5% of the population go to church, let alone, we don't know how many of them have a faith in Christ, but we're part of a a, a great uh, army of, of, of God and God is with us and he's greater than him who's against us but may it um, just drive us to pray and drive us to pray for those who don't see and who can't see and maybe for us if we have become blinded, it's easy isn't it for us to become blinded again to lose sight uh, to lose our vision for Christ, to lose our interest in Christ bored and dulled by him Pray that we can see and be enthused and uh, uh, rejoice in him and understand him better. Amen. Let's ask that of God in prayer, Lord. Lord, help us to understand and know you better uh, as we uh, live our lives. We uh, recognize uh, the struggles that people face and... uh, Recognize the battles that we are in. I read of a quote this week, Lord, um, from some great Christian from the past who said, Give a word of encouragement to every Christian you meet because everyone is in a battle. And may we remember that word of grace not just to our fellow Christians, but may we uh, shower love and uh, goodness and kindness onto those who uh, may be regarded as enemies of the cross, those who don't believe or those who uh, who maybe uh, mock or uh, give us a hard time about our own faith. And may we simply pray for them with love and grace and act in love and grace towards them and pray that they will see, because we know each of us had people in our lives Particularly parents, maybe grandparents, friends who prayed for us and said, Lord, help them to see. And so we may share that burden and concern for others and uh, lovingly uh, ask you to act uh, on our behalf in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.